0: GM friends and welcome to the future of gaming you're listening to our weekly blockchain gaming roll-up we are recording this on the 16th of September 2022 we've got Phil or Philip Collins we've got Devin Becker we've got myself Nico Verike and today we're discussing one the big news in web3 from this week the Ethereum merge Ethereum wins from proof of work to proof of stake what does that mean? What the hell are these things? Um, what can we expect? We're going to talk about NFT sales, NFT fundraisers and related business models because we had a question from one of our DAO members about that. We're going to talk about Black Blanco's Bug Party that launches on the Epic Game Store and then Ubisoft backpedaling on their NFT strategy. And then maybe there's some other interesting stuff that comes up that we can discuss. Um, yeah, let's dive into the things. Um, so, hey, welcome Phil and Devin. First of all, the merge. So what happens? And I saw a great analogy about this on um, on uh, Twitter, which was essentially, imagine you have a car and the car is driving. So the, the engine's on, the car is driving down the road, it's driving, let's say... Uh, 70 kilometers an hour. It's not super fast. It's not top speed, but it, it's it's going, right? Everyone's using it. Like there's this, like the, the, and so this car is Ethereum, basically. Ethereum is a blockchain that's being used, right? People are submitting transactions. There's shit going on. Um, and the Ethereum car, the original Ethereum car had like this insane V8 engine, which was making lots of noise, but also consuming lots of fuel. And the idea was, okay, you know, we want to make a hyper-efficient, you know, Tesla electric Uh, um, uh, engine in that. But one of the problems is there's a lot of people making use of of this car so we can't stop it. So we need to replace the engine of this car while it's driving without anyone noticing, without stopping. Um, And essentially that's what the merge was. So you had the proof of stake, no, sorry, the proof of work which was the original um consensus consensus mechanism was using lots of energy as everyone knows everyone was ha- was hating and every time you minted an nft you were basically burning down half of the rainforest um and so that everyone knew that that was unsustainable and there were actually mechanisms mechanisms built into ethereum to force it to go towards proof of stake um and proof of stake is way more efficient um way less energy cons- consuming um and so the merge happened this week so so, the people like the all of the nerds working on this all of the brilliant engineers working on this um effectively like while ethereum was running they managed to change the consensus mechanism of ethereum from proof of work to proof of stake so they essentially changed the engine from like a v8 um fuel guzzler towards a very efficient electric engine did you guys celebrate
1: yeah i was uh I was sitting there, like, waiting, and then, like, I, when there was, like, two hours left, I forgot. And then, like, a couple hours later, I was like, oh, wow, wow, wow it happened. Okay, cool. And But yep. I was, like, Googling around for panic, like, looking looking for any news yeah, stories yeah, yeah, about yeah. more people freaking out or anything like that. It felt like Y2K a little bit. Yeah. You remember when Y2K
2: happened and you're, like, kind of waiting? Mm-hmm. You're like, is everything going to explode? So, I was at, definitely that kind of vibe. Yeah, it was almost interesting how easy it was to miss if you weren't paying attention because... Yeah. I didn't see a lot of chaos around it. And I think there was a lot of anticipation to Devin's point around what could go wrong because it is trying to solve a pretty hard problem to, to Nico's analogy of changing the engine in a car while it's going down the highway. Um, so I was pretty surprised at how quickly, efficiently it just kind of came and went in a lot of ways. No,
1: honestly it was like two years late. So I, I'm, I'm not as surprised, uh, more like pleased and, and, I was a little worried, but at the same time, I'm like, come on, man, you guys have delayed this so long. You better go so smooth at this point.
0: Yeah. It's a good thing. I think, um, you know, we tend to, like, I think there's actually a significant amount of important things going on on on-chain that we don't talk about enough. Like, you know, if if you're not able to extract your NFT from a game onto the blockchain and sell it on OpenSea, like, that's not that big a deal, right? Mm -hmm. But I think there are some more essential economic activities activities being done on the chain. Um I should probably have some examples for this, but I don't on top of my head. But um there's shit going on that's important. Phil, help yeah. me out here.
2: No, and I think I think it's a it's a great point where this is a in a lot of ways, I think a validation point that should get a lot of make that will hopefully or maybe get a lot of people more comfortable with storing that type of data on chain. So like I'm thinking healthcare data, for example, um, and and storing that on chain. Um your, your back-end systems, if you're dealing with that kind of that kind of security, privacy risk, and the importance of that data being constantly available, um, that just can't go down. And so I feel like with blockchain still being a relatively new technology, there is a lot of hesitance to put that on chain. But I think as the technology continues to prove itself out, things like that can start to move that direction. Um, and, and I don't think this is necessarily like a proof point that will make that happen overnight, but... You know more of these proof points stacking on top of each other will 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 push in the right direction
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah It's good to see like you know something actually working out for once that's like a big deal. you know it was it was not like it was a good moment for all the people that love to just complain about every single thing about crypto to like not have anything to say for half a second. Mm. Like, I'm sure they were scrambling for something else to cry about. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, oh God, we got to find something else to to be mad about for two Mm -hmm. seconds. Uh, So it was almost like a moment of silence, you
0: know, on the internet. Silence the haters. Um, So for me, there's two things that are interesting here. The first one is that from this point, the Ethereum, the total Ethereum supply or the Ether supply, so the amount of ETH in the world is deflationary. So, which means that every block... There is more ETH burned than there is emitted. One of the reasons for this is that proof of work mining uses electricity. Electricity is expensive. And so, you know, the Ethereum blockchain needed to pay miners a lot of ETH to actually incentivize them to actually, you know, validate transactions and make the blockchain work. And now that we're at proof of stake, the um, the amount of ETH that is required, like the, the cost of mining is way lower because you're mm-hmm. not using electricity or as, as the network grows, you're not using more electricity. Um, you're essentially like you're hosting a node, which is very energy f- efficient and you're essentially putting, you know, you're using a number of ETH, your stake to actually validate transactions and, and you put it at risk. So it keeps you honest. Um, and so that is way more energy efficient. But so ETH is deflationary, which A lot of people were saying like, I don't know if you've seen this meme of like ultrasound money, right? Where ETH is a better currency than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is capped at 21 million. Ethereum now has peaked at around 120 million, but it is deflationary. So every minute there's fewer ETH in supply. So theoretically, if all goes well, the value of ETH goes up. So that was the storyline of a lot of these uh, Ethereum maxis. Um, So one deflationary. And second, and this I found pretty interesting, um, is that set, that people calc- had calculated that the global energy consumption will go down by zero point two percent because of this. So global energy—that's that, like—it yeah. it couldn't come at a better
1: way. time, considering all the energy problems,
2: especially in Europe. Also, also <laughs> good timing. Yeah,
0: yeah. To be fair, I'm like, curious
2: to see what the next. The next iteration of I feel like environmental concerns were always such a big pushback from the the general population. Ugh. I'm 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 curious to see what takes its place from a from a pushback perspective on on crypto more generally. Obviously, right. we know that there have been plenty of proof of stake solutions out there that are a lot more environment environmentally friendly than ETH layer one. But um, this is a pretty big hit to that argument um yeah. a, a pretty people will pretty still make it though let's be honest there's yeah. a
1: lot of people that have no idea the details and will just repeat mm. whatever they hear and yeah. this it probably will take quite a while before people start you stop using that same argument anyways but it's like it it's about time because like it, it wasn't that it was like people were arguing that that blockchain necessarily was uh the problem it was like associating with nfts that was a problem like nfts are destroying the environment it was like a mm. big big knock against like the the way people associate with nfts and to be honest, I think a lot of people are being disingenuous because I think a lot of people touting the environmental argument weren't the kind of people that normally care about that. I think they were just looking for something they could use. And to Phil's point, like, what is that going to be replaced with now? Because it, didn't, it wasn't really something they genuinely cared about. Like, they'll, they'll play on their super gamer rig, you know, with their 3080 Ti that's, like, <laughs> burning up a forest worth of heat, like, that, that could heat their whole home without actually even turning on anything but the computer. And they're worried about, like, oh, what Ethereum's doing. So it's very disingenuous, but most of the time, and they not, not everyone. There are people who genuinely care, but I think it will be good at least to knock one excuse off. Um, but you know, it's, it's not like uh, excuses uh, around free to play ever completely went away for, you know, to use kind of a parallel, right? Like people mm-hmm. will still kind of find other things to argue about it or mm-hmm. be upset with it. And I don't think it's going to convert many people, but at least like you said, we can, we can just be like, all right, well, shut up about that one. Then let's move on kind of thing mm-hmm. for, for them. And then, it, it it is also good for the environment so i guess like i just i'll be honest i didn't care about that that much but it is it is a good thing right it's not but but also more importantly it's it's potentially speeding up transactions and requiring a lot less actual work to be done to do those transactions and therefore potentially allowing for a lot more uh growth opportunity and considering we want nfts to have another big boom potentially yeah you know, ideally tied you know with games rather than just art but this this will help facilitate that, I think.
0: When you say we want a new NFT boom, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, so we know we had this, like, we had the the 2017 and a 2018 thing and then the crypto winter, so that was, like, one mm-hmm. kind of big boom and then, like, you know, quiet for a while and then we had, like, the 2020 into, or I guess 2021 into 2022 boom and that kind of, you know, has cooled down. And it's, like, obviously we need some hype cycles to get people, like, the general public involved in this stuff because the general public doesn't care that much about these future technologies and cool things. I mean, obviously we have, you know, somewhat of a listener base here for the future of gaming, but they they don't always represent the general public. And the general public pays attention when there's something big going on that they mm-hmm. should be part of and the FOMO and all that. I, we don't want it to be repeated, but we do want there to be some excitement again. We don't want people to like have to like take 10 years to slowly get in to NFT gaming again. We We kind of need a little bit of uh, gas on the fire again at some point.
2: Mm. Yeah, hopefully that gas this time around is just not about price appreciation and liquidity, right. I think. yeah, that was but, but that's that, what gets the most attention.
0: Isn't that what? Isn't that what Devin's exactly... Which, this was my question to Devin, right? Isn't that yeah. what he's saying? For me, sort th- of. there's two booms, it seems. Like, in my head, there's two possible booms. One is a small supply of NFTs, like ex- exponentially grows in value. But then the problem is that that for me cannot build a good game like you cannot build a good game around a small supply of very expensive assets right mm-hmm. and so for me a boom like a more like a better boom would be that the number of nft explodes and they actually get used but they're not necessarily all worth that much maybe to some of them it's right. worth much right but yeah. then then the problem is i guess like it doesn't you don't have that much headlines around that it's less interesting right and, that, and that's what like, it comes
1: down to it's like getting public's attention it's, greed is a great and like thing that gets gets people in but it's not, like it's not a great thing long term but short term yeah. it gets people excited uh, and <laughs> yeah. because it's the, it's the FOMO thing right where they're like if people are making lots of money doing something honestly that's what partially built the internet is people being like people didn't care about the internet and uh, like you remember when, the way nerds were treated prior to the internet being a big success like prior to the dot com thing like you know oh you you know, these dumb nerds whatever like that sort of thing and then that changed when it was like oh these rich nerds <laughs> like people suddenly like cared and we like nice to nerds like dude that guy could be the next whatever like he could be some rich website maker like you know people didn't give a crap until like the, the people were rich off of it and it sucks we kind of have to go through that but people have limited attention right like there's limited attention there's limited capacity for news bandwidth that people have and as as much as it can be detrimental to have these big boom and bust cycles, they also build out a ton of infrastructure, draw a lot of investment and a lot of things that do come successfully out of them. Even if a lot of people fail along the way, lose money along the way, like without the the dot-com crash, for example, right? Like we wouldn't have had the dot-com boom, you know, like that uh, built most of the internet that got most of us online that we can have this podcast right now. Had we not had people throwing money after bad ideas too. Uh, it, it sucks it has to go that way, but if people have limited capacity for doing smart things, sometimes I'm going to make them do some dumb things too if it helps things mm. move along.
2: Yeah. I mean, I do wonder if the the point on when people see the rich nerds, they get really excited. I still think even in this world, the, the quote unquote rich, rich nerds will probably be. In our case, the game developers themselves that are creating really compelling experiences. they are like and movies,
1: right? And movie plots where they're like the 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 big game designer who made this thing, like a you know, yeah. player one or these these other things.
2: Yeah, and I, I, so I think that that will that will attract people, and who knows, maybe like again going back to Limit Break, there's something about the whales attracting people, where it's like, oh, this wallet has five hundred thousand dollars in it. I should pay attention. Maybe I can maybe I can trade my two dollar NFT to something really impressive. But um, I, I think to what Nico was saying before. I'm hopeful that the next wave is maybe more about like volume adoption. Where owning a $5 NFT is, is really cool and within the right experience versus kind of just hoping everything 2000 X's and you come out with a bunch of money. And I think there's, I think there's an opportunity that with the types of games that are hopefully in the pipeline or that I think we're seeing in the pipeline that are maybe not announced or just have a lot of time left to, to go. Um, that will drive the volume adoption. And I think that the volume adoption will be a much more sustainable boom than what we've seen over the last Right, but go to the limit break thing. Like
1: obviously that pushed like a game of uh, Warfire Age. Look what that Mm -hmm. did for free-to-play as a model. Like how fast that pushed that model forward. Uh, I'm not arguing like this is a good thing necessarily. I'm just saying like sometimes it's a little bit of a necessary evil. And Mm -hmm. to your point, I agree. Like I hope the next cycle is focused on something else and brings the NFT stuff along with it in a good way. And something else can boom and bust, right? Mm-hmm. But it like helps, you know, the the next thing like cause NFTs were like a repeat of the the ICO boom, right? Like that big sort of boom and bust around tokens. So it wasn't like uh, the same thing, right? It wasn't. I mean, tokens were still part of it, but it was more like oh, well, it was hyping up NFTs and tokens kind of got dragged along. So the next one will probably be hyping up something else, and tokens and NFTs will get dragged along, right? Like because people don't necessarily want to get excited about the exact same thing again. They want something like similar enough that they can kind of understand it, but different enough that they don't feel like they're going to get ripped off again, even though they probably will. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they kind of convince themselves, oh, this time will be different.
0: Yeah. What do you think the effect will be of ETH L1 going, you know, carbon neutral is probably not, that's not the right word, right? But going like not as force burning as it was before um, on big companies, big publishers, big developers' involvement or in, like taking NFTs into their game, right? Because I think there's a chance that the global um, thinking around NFTs like shifts away from the, like it, it seems like every time any big company has touched crypto, they had to like, every page had like, this is carbon negative or whatever, right? So it was it, this was a big, big uh, point that they had to emphasize. And so do you think this might lead to some easier accept- acceptance more um... I don't think
1: it was I don't think it was uh caution sort of thing I think it was virtue signaling at the end of the day I think they were doing it more as a way to say that they were better not as a way to say like oh, oh don't worry we we're not we don't hmm. have this problem hmm. and so I I think they'll just move away to some other reason to talk about it. I don't think I don't think they go oh we're using ethereum now that it's a, you know proof of stake everybody let's all celebrate I don't think you're going to see a page about that it was more like they were picking other blockchains and going like our projects different because of blah. And, but like virtue signaling it where they're trying to do it in a way that it gets attention or gets people like to to think different about it. And I don't think you can do the same about Ethereum, like going back, like you can't go to an older chain and be like, it's different now it's better. And like tout it the same way. And so I don't think it works as well as a marketing ploy. So I, I, I'm sure we'll see it mentioned now and then, but I don't think it's going to change like game developers marketing thing. I think there'll be something else. Uh, as, as Phil was saying earlier about, you know, replacing that argument with something else, we'll probably see some other thing that becomes the, the sort of like marketing point or uh thing. And, and who knows what that'll be like, we've seen a little bit of that already in other areas too, where we went, oh, it's not play to earn. It's, it's play to own. And you know, those other, those other shifts we've seen where people shift like to a different way of saying it or whatever. I think we'll see those kind of shifts where they'll like. Whatever the next argument is, oh, NFTs are a ripoff because if, you know, whatever about the NFT, like da-da-da, we don't own it, or then people will play off that instead, right? And I think ownership might be the next big one, right? Like where people go, oh, I don't really own it because it's just pointing to it. Mm-hmm. Or these other kinds of arguments, they'll be like, oh, well, but our thing has the metadata on chain instead mm-hmm. of, like, pointing. Like, those kinds of things, that'll probably be the next sort of, like, marketing ploy for, uh, for game developers is to find the next problem
2: to use as their banner, essentially. Yeah, I think like the environmental concerns using that as a specific example, were just were just one thing that large companies had concerns about integrating into their process flows. I think still today, the biggest thing for any big brand that's considering getting into the space is, I think, the user experience side and just onboarding, and you know, they are reaching a probably a small subset of their target audience by integrating Web3 features today. Um, just because, you know, it still is, it still is not the easiest way to transact in the world. Right. And I think there's a lot of people working on these problems, but until those are very clearly solved, I think a lot of brands have, have no real consequences or downside from kind of waiting and seeing, um, a lot of the companies we deal with are trying to, to use the, the wait and see strategy to their advantage and say, we're going to be on the cutting edge and we're going to be there before a lot of these bigger, slower brands even realize what they're, what they're missing out on. Right. But I think for now they can kind of, kind of rest on their current models and say like, until the user experience is better, until this makes sense for our user base, we can just kind of hold out. And regardless of what happens, I think there's, there's a, there's an onboarding challenge that needs to be solved.
0: This kind of brings us into our one of the points we're going to touch upon, which is Ubisoft. Um, I was
1: thinking that as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what's happening? Who, who can uh, who can describe this the best? It, yeah, so at a high level, you know, Ubisoft was the I, I would say
2: the most aggressive AAA game publisher that really entered into Web three in a big way. Uh, they did it back in December through their their Quartz NFT program implementing it into, to ghost recon. And it was, it was a big deal, right? I mean, we hadn't seen IP of that scale, even, even try to touch NFTs. Um, I think in execution, it was I would I would call underwhelming. Um, it it got a lot of press up front and really tailed off very quickly. I forget the numbers of NFTs that were sold through courts on on Ghost Recon, but it was extremely extremely low. Like I would say mm-hmm. negligible. Um, yeah, like less and, than a hundred or something. Yeah, it was it was it was something, something crazy insane. like that. Yeah. To be fair, Answer, I a
1: dumb. I just yeah. it was just
2: too much of a pain and so for all of the for all of the hype and all of the hate that ubisoft received for it i think in execution it ended up being written off as a failure very quickly and ubisoft went semi quiet they continued to announce partnerships to improve their program but at the end of the day like that announcement was kind of their big hurrah into the space um and over the last few days um some articles have come out talking about ubisoft ceo de- determining and saying that Ubisoft is currently in a research mode on NFTs and blockchain gaming. I think that's a a nice way of saying we're looking into it sort of, um but not really doing anything right now and so it is a pretty it, it's a pretty big confirmation of a 180 for them. Um, and I I do think it is probably going to be a little bit of a hit to other AAA's that are exploring this space where like that is the best peer comp they have and I think their efforts to date have failed pretty catastrophically. Um so yeah, it's interesting to see the the big brands um the big brands initial experiences and I think there's the the user opposition and just the difficulty in, in onboarding that's that's continuing to cause issues from a adoption and sentiment standpoint from the average you know, consumer player. It's
1: it's not unlike Ubisoft to get jump into new areas and not do that great. Like does anyone remember most of their VR stuff they made? Nope. No, yeah. exactly. Like they, they, they've definitely, they've definitely dived into areas cause they like to stay cutting edge as a company. And I think that's a great thing for mm-hmm. them, especially mm-hmm. as a company that's so bureaucratic has so much trouble, like move, like improving their processes and doing all these other things that at least they have these R and D projects that they, they're willing to throw money towards learning new stuff. It's funny cause it, a lot of times it doesn't trickle very well into the rest of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but like they, they do at least push that stuff. And, and, it wasn't really just, like, the Quartz thing, if you if you actually look at Ubisoft's spend and what they've done and stuff, like, the Quartz thing was such a drop in the bucket compared to the rest of the stuff they've done. They're invested in so many games and so many, like, blockchains and other things that they've actually put money into that mm-hmm. people just kind of, like, see once and then forget about that they were involved. Um, that's, like, an area where they've been really helpful uh, without getting the backlash the same way, right? And so I think that's, like, their way of thinking, like, well, maybe that's what we should be doing right now is like backing these things because we're not getting backlash from doing that. Um, And then at some point, maybe they go and publish a game. Like they don't make it themselves. They find a really Mm -hmm. good blockchain game that someone's made that already has like a good community or something. And then they just publish it. And then they go, okay, that's our way in as like a sort of like cheating way into it that like doesn't... Because the problem is they are so leaning on their IPs. Like if you watch the Ubisoft Forward stuff, Mm -hmm. like they are really at this point just like backed into a corner on their IPs at this point. Like, it was Assassin's Creed all day long. That's all they had. Like, Assassin's Creed and Tom Clancy stuff. And that's it. That's all they have, like, at this point, is those two franchises, for the most part, outside of the Mario Rabbids thing, which is cool, but that's, like, that's actually playing more off Nintendo's IP than their own.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Because, like, I, I enjoy Rabbids, but I don't think anyone's buying that for the Rabbids. They're buying it for Mario more than Rabbids, right? And then, you know, I don't think anyone cares that much about Just Dance anymore, And the Rocksmith Plus thing, from what I've heard, is just kind of a big, big flop. And so they're really at this point just leaning that. So I think as long as they don't make an Assassin's Creed blockchain game, like they're probably fine at this point. And I think that's the big thing is like the worry is is tainting your IP Mm -hmm. is, I think, their biggest concern. So if they do it with new IP, do it with whatever, I think they can get back into that. And I think they still want to. I don't think they've like backed out, but I I do agree that like saying we're researching it it was definitely a backpedal. Uh, But as a company, like, they have a lot of trouble moving stuff forward, having personal experience working with Ubisoft in in the commentating thing. And I don't mean this is a knock against them, but they they really struggled to get into esports, to work on live games, because their entire business model was built around making these AAA games and then occasionally selling some DLC and then making sequels. And so they had this process where, like, they build a game, move the team on to a new game afterwards right like you have a skeleton crew for dlc that's it and so then when they had to do live games they'd be like oh crap well like uh we've got to keep some people here we can't just ship them off to the other game and like just all these internal problems and i bring that up because like that's that's a thing that's going to come with blockchain too right like you've got this this thing where we hear about like uh when quartz got pushed out all these people in ubisoft were like oh i don't want to be associated with that i think that's stupid like that that wasn't my decision and so we're going to have a thing like if they actually do start doing some blockchain games, like they're going to have to shift internal processes. Like people are going to have to yeah. work differently. And those have to be live games to some extent as well. And so I think with AAAs entering the space in general, it's going to require a lot of shifting parts around and stuff. And so I'm really interested to see, for example, when Zynga kind of makes a big splash because now they're under an even bigger company. They're still a big company themselves. They're not as agile as they used to be.
2: I don't know. I'm really interested to see this overall storyline. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Zynga. There's some because there's something interesting about the timing with Ubisoft as well. So Ubisoft recently got another pretty substantial investment from Tencent. I think Tencent now owns 49.9% of one of the entities. There's a little bit of a structure uh, to to the company and I think and it was buying from the Gilmont
1: brothers uh, yes. shares as well, right? So that's yes. kind of
2: buying into the more of the root of the company. Exactly. Um and what I've been what I've been reading a lot of on Ubisoft is with this partner, partnership with tencent there's actually been an, a growing focus on mobile for them and i do wonder that whether or not you know in a time where a lot of these these public companies in particular are getting hit pretty hard and a lot of these meet kind of like top tier but not they're not the full-size whales in the in the ocean of gaming uh, are trying to maybe tee themselves up for some kind of of acquisition you know we saw this with zynga getting acquired um by take two and whether it's an acquisition by another larger fish in, in the gaming world, or just kind of caving into what Tencent wants them to be for a full buyout in the future. Um, I think they're, they're probably just more focused on core strategy. And I think Web3 probably taking a little bit of a backseat as they tried to optimize for some form of acquisition or future investment, whatever that looks like from Tencent or, or others.
1: Given their experience in mobile and their their inability to shift towards live games very well and stuff like that, I don't see that going very well for them. Like uh, I remember Tom Clancy's Elite Squad was an interesting game, but ultimately failed. They've had a, a, a number of other games that just haven't done all that great, mm-hmm. and now they're bringing over the big IP like uh, Rainbow Six Siege, The Division. Uh, they're really trying to go all in with it, and uh, well, I'm sure some of the the overall like work being done because it's being done with. Tencent and things like that, it will be decent. I I just worry that Ubisoft themselves is not fully capable of handling that and will have to defer more and more to Tencent or companies like Timmy under them with that experience to help bring that IP over. And then it becomes like two Ubisofts. You've got the one just, you know, playing the existing franchise game on consoles and PC. And then, you know, uh, the, essentially the mobile division basically based out of China at that point. Uh, And of course, if we end up in some geopolitical situations with China, then there's like half of Ubisoft kind of paralyzed at that point. I feel like it's a big risk, but I understand what you're saying. Like in that, they kind of are like running out of runway in what they were doing before and looking for maybe a brighter future in possible acquisition, or at least, uh, you know, looking at Tencent to be like, please help us move forward. But it feels very risky for a company that's like, that has so much uh, strength in their IP and their other things that have just really kind of lost their way to some extent.
0: It is fascinating to me how Ubisoft has an accelerator, like a like a new technology accelerator program. And you know who came out of there? So rare You know who else came out of there? Sky Mavis. And so they've actually worked with these teams years ago. They've put out these companies, like these are probably the two, like, two of the top five biggest blockchain gaming companies out there um, and th- those have worked with with Ubisoft and those were helped by Ubisoft and it's it's so interesting to see how little like how little leverage they've gotten from that or how little they've learned or because they also don't even have a stake in it right it's like it's almost free um, mm. to come do it their R&D there stuff's
1: and- great I love what they do with their R&D, like the are yeah. pushing stuff forward constantly. Like Stadia was basically built off the back of Ubisoft's experiments and like Ubisoft Plus on st- stuff on Stadia was like was helped carry the few AAA games that get released on it. Yeah.
0: So the the head of, of the R&D department, it might be not him, but um, so there's uh, Nicolas Poire, who's like the, the blockchain guy at Ubisoft. So I was going to record with him uh, like a few weeks ago. And he told me like he had to cancel because his CEO had some he had to help his CEO and that might be mm-hmm. might have been related to this. Um and so uh so the, the recording isn't done yet, but I'll be sure to uh to ask him some, some tough questions about what the hell, man. You've you've worked with these teams, you've done some fantastic R and D and look where you're at now. So um good. Uh, let, let's see what where where that ends up. Um, The next topic I'd like to mention or ask about or talk about is um, a question that we had from one of our members. Do I actually find his name? Do you guys look for his name in the Discord? In the meantime, I'll I'll read his, his question. So quick operational question on something I don't entirely understand. Do NFT sales, primary and secondary, accrue directly to the team treasury? What do most teams use the NFT sale income for? Is it for paying expenses such as a team or buying tokens or other? Do gaming projects pay developers and team via NFT primary and secondary sales as well as via token lockups? Do teams record separate line items for protocol revenue and NFT sales on a quarterly basis? Any projects that publicly show this activity on their treasury or elsewhere would be greatly appreciated. So for me, this is a, a kind of broader question about like, NFT-based or like blockchain-based business models and like blockchain games-based business models um, and, you know, fundraising, uh, tokenomics, I guess also, um, and accounting, which I like that last part. I don't have a lot of insights in, um, but do, do we know the name of the, the, the question? Yeah, it was Will32. Will32, Will shout out. Um, so... So, yeah, let's talk a bit about what we've seen in, in regards to this, uh, th- this question. Uh, Devin, you've, you've worked with a ton of companies yeah. doing this. What do you see? This
1: is something I think about a lot as well in just terms of business models and revenue and uh, even kind of the accounting side of things because right now everyone's just kind of stumbling through it and, and kind of misthinking about things. Um, so it's really interesting to see uh, like this kind of evolving. So I feel like at first everyone just did everything in tokens, treated tokens as money, and that was kind of like the way things went because it was like, I feel like it almost was like a legal thing too. You were able to get away with a lot more stuff when you were treating tokens as money and like not involving real money. Cause that avoided a lot of legal and accounting things. Um, and then, you know, you have stuff like NFT pre-sales, right. And it's like, there's a couple of different ways those can go. It's like, you can use those as, and we've gotten into the, you know, the, the cons of those as well, of course, previously, but they, uh, you know, it could come in as a form of, of cash or as something that you're uh, selling for your token. So like an example, of that was like Alluvium, right? Where a big portion of their land sales actually came from their token more so than ETH, even though you could do either or, right? And that actually ended up burning a huge amount of their game token. And so you could argue like how much of that was really revenue then, depending on how those game tokens are acquired and things like that. Um, and it's tricky too, because most of the time, even, even when people are doing the sales essentially for what you consider cash, uh, it's still coming in a form of token, right? No, one's really like taking credit cards for, uh, NFTs. They're taking like ETH or at best USDC or some other form of abstracted money. So at the end of the day, like in order for it to become something that it, people are using as money it's either in their accounting, like for their treasury for, uh, for paying developers, for repaying investors, whatever it might be, that has to be converted back to cash in some form or another in order to do that. And so that's where it becomes like complicated with the accounting as we, as we know from like anyone who's tried to do taxes involving crypto stuff, it gets very complicated because you like have to go like, so if, if someone pays you an ETH, right. And you go to report, like you go to cash out the ETH to, uh, whatever to pay the bills for the company, repay investors or, whatever you're using it for. How do you decide what value is it? The value that you cashed it out at. Do you have to report the profit between the time you got the ETH and the time that you sold the ETH? Uh, it's, it's a very complicated thing. Um, but at the end of the day, like there is a certain amount. I think that tra- like typically these NFT sales are often paying people initially, at least. They're, they're some of the runway for people that aren't getting fundraisers. Um, obviously, if you get a fundraise, that's, that's a more direct form a finance. So, a lot, a lot of people will get a lot of NFT presales and kind of sit on that and try and get the fundraise money, right? And I'm sure you guys have seen that mm-hmm. um, because you guys are often doing that, right? Giving them that fundraise money. And then the, they'll use that as their cash on hand, essentially, to have their runway to go through the burn and keep the rest as sort of more of a reserve or like whatever else they want to do with that money they got from the NFT presales and treating the NFT presales more as a validator for the fundraising, right? Rather than treating it as a cash flow. Um, but it tends, it varies a little bit because you see some people like, uh, Sky Mavis that tend to treat AXS as if it were money and frequently referring to it in dollar terms and things like that. Um, but you know, they, they're using it to pay out, uh, as if it were cash, they're using it to get in as if it were cash. And so people are treating it as this sort of like liquid form of cash. Um, but, but not always converting it back to that. And I think people are definitely, uh, to answer one of the other questions, definitely using, um tokens or gov- like governance tokens or other kind of um, sort of locked up sort of tokens that are that are normally for investors as a way to also pay employees sometimes. So they're, they're, it's similar to the idea of like, you know, startups where you get paid in equity, um, stuff like that. It's a very, very similar idea. Like they're treating it like it's a startup, going to fundraise, they're they're giving people tokens saying they'll be worth X amount. And you don't necessarily go public the same way in terms of like the way that those vest. Uh, but then those, they still usually do have a, a lockup period. So you will often say, and you can usually tell this, right? It's very easy if you look at someone's white paper and their their tokenomics distribution and you see like a team section or developers or whatever, like that's where people are getting essentially paid in equity.
0: So one way this is done that I've seen a few times, which I think, you know, just makes things kind of simple is you have two parties. You have a operational company and then the other party is the DAO. And so the operational company is is, is pretty much the people, um, you know, the whole the, all of the people, the employees that work there, and the DAO is essentially like the the treasury, so where the revenues from the game get accrued, um, and where the the IP lies, often, or it could be in the first company as well. That doesn't really matter. But um, the way I see this work is is twofold. So um, the DAO is governed by a governance token. The company owns part of the governance token. Part of the governance token is owned by the investor. Part of the governance token is owned by, you know, the public, essentially like, you know, the, the pie chart that you can see on white papers, that's like, you know, the distribution of the governance token, the NFT sales, the revenue of that is kept in the treasury, which means that, you know, the team partially owns part of that. Like the, the revenues, like let's say a thousand ETH is raised, you know. If if you own 10% of the governance token, then that means that you own 10% of that 1,000 ETH, and you can choose what happens with it. Um, if you own one percent, it's the same thing. All of the revenue from the protocol. So if you build a game where there's like trading fees um, and royalty streams, those go into the treasury. Which means that you know as there's more revenue accrued, you know that goes into that treasury. And theoretically, if you own percentage of the governance token supply, then you own that part of like that fraction of the, the whole treasury. And then there is often a agreement between the operational company and the DAO, which for example says that, okay, um, for like development services, so for development of the game, you, we're going to pay maybe, you know, um, half a million or like a million bucks a year, for example. And so that means that every year, a million bucks or like every month, like, you know, uh, 80,000 bucks goes from the uh, treasury to the operational company. And so that's what I've seen as a a pretty strong distinction. Um, And so the teams are being paid for their work and they're incentivized to optimize the the total value of the treasury and the token um, by holding some of that token. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's that's how I've seen these things work. Hope it did a decent job at explaining it.
2: Yeah, it, it does introduce a, a new wrinkle that I think hasn't been common to traditional capital raising either directly through investors or crowdfunding where you're effectively only getting a portion of what you're raising sometimes right. through these primary sales where like if a team owns 25%, you're maybe getting 25 cents on the dollar of, of mm. certain of certain inflows. Um, and I think that's something that we've seen be a big challenge for a lot of companies over the last year where it introduces this factor of treasury management, um, which a lot of times I think startup founders don't actually have to deal with. This is more of something that like capital allocation comes through for larger larger companies, public or private, where you're managing maybe billions of dollars in cash and you're trying to figure out like what should be allocated to short-term investments versus cash and cash equivalents. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's putting a big a big burden on startup founders that are managing $5 million. And uh, I think we've seen this in a couple of cases where, you know, the Ragnarok situation that happened within the last month, like treasury management kind of burned the company's capital allocation and what they had available to build a great game and to support their team. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it, it does throw a wrinkle into the capital allocation strategy and one that is kind of new to most people that are having to deal with it right now. Yeah, it's weird but to I say, Nico, like, great description of Yeah, how it flows.
1: absolutely. And, and then to, to what Nico was saying, it's like, it, it's sometimes strange to be like, well, we, we can't pay you directly, but what we'll do is we'll give you ownership of a treasury that you manage. So we're not giving you that money, but you get to manage it. And that's such, that's such a weird thing to say. Like, you get to decide what happens with it, but you probably shouldn't decide it goes to you. Mm hmm. So like, that's what we're paying you in. And that's and obviously like there are, you know, other alternatives to that, but that that seems like the weirder way to pay people for governance over money they can't have as their, as their sort of like reward. And that's kind of a weird way to like, like people, people get need to eat. Like that's kind of, I don't know. I I just, I don't see that being like a great long-term thing without some other form of compensation as well. Or people are going to start to look like shareholders that get really, really greedy at some point and start to find ways to funnel the money out through proposals. Or we're going to basically like, like, so imagine I'm, I'm one of these shareholders essentially of this treasury, right? And I'm like, goddamn, I need some money. I'm like not getting money out of this. I can manage this. I can manage proposals. I can get people to vote for stuff, but I can't just cash the damn thing out at an ATM. And so I'll set up a shell company that's going to be a developer And I'm going to basically get that voted on a proposal that's going to allocate a whole bunch of this, this token over to my shell company to, to pay them to essentially develop whatever. And that's how I'm going to get my money out. And I imagine stuff like that will come up. Like people will find ways to use proposals because it's like, it happens all the time in in real world government and real world business lobbyists. Like there's all kinds of stuff like that, that happens even when it's not straight for money it's just for favors or whatever else. So I imagine like there is going to be a huge temptation for that sort of thing. When people are governing money that, that probably shouldn't be governing money. And because we're just kind of giving it to whoever, it's just a token. I could just buy it off the market. Like I could just go to the market and have some partial control over a big vat of money with no real resume required, you know, like that's going to be Uh, A bit of a problem I see without some guardrails. and That's why, of course, like, you know, real world corporations, we have a whole bunch of stuff and regulations and SEC and things to kind of like regulate that. I'm not saying they always do a great job, but that's part of why we have that stuff is because people will do some shady stuff and they still get away with shady stuff, unfortunately. And SEC is kind of like half the time, like half an eye open at best. But uh, I I anticipate that being a bit of a problem long term.
0: Mm. Um. It's clear that around treasury management, there's not as many guardrails as there is around like traditional treasury management for like mm-hmm. big companies. I've seen some drama within the Web3 space, so not, the, not the gaming space, but the more DeFi space where the founder of a Protocol had, they had raised like multiple millions of dollars, um, like tens of millions of dollars. And so one, they were paying themselves like 150K a month, like the, the founder's. Um, then they also gave themselves a bonus because they sold out like a, like a governance token and, and they gave it themselves like a 600k bonus. And the dude was actually like speculating with the treasury on like, you know, price movements. And he ended up m- losing like 10, $10 million dollars million on top of the amount that he paid to himself and, and other, that he, other friends probably that he had. And so there was a huge community backlash and he was like, yeah, sorry, I made a mistake. Um, but sorry. Yeah. Sorry, well, guys. that's didn't that's that's it.
2: an interest. An interesting thing with all the token raises that have been happening too is like, if you if you sell your tokens and you you exchange for ETH and you just have a bunch of ETH sitting on your company balance sheet, right? Your ten million dollar raise may be worth a fraction of that, depending on when you raised. If you just mm-hmm. if you didn't convert it to fiat, and it's mm-hmm. it's one of those situations where, prior to you know, call it spring of this year sitting on crypto rather than converting it to fiat was expanding your raise. You know, you might've raised $5 million and then you were sitting on six or seven, seven and a half. Now it's the right. reverse where you might've raised 10 and now you're sitting on four. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Stable coins the, will
1: definitely be an important part, I think, of treasury management in the future. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: And there are also companies that offer services. Like if you... I haven't seen this happen like directly, like, um, but I know it happens is if, if you own a token that's locked, even even for like two more years, there are people who are willing to buy a promise that you'll give them your locked token for a certain mm-hmm. amount of money at, a, at obviously a discount. isn't that like but, uh,
1: stock options and stuff like that essentially yeah.
0: Pretty so much yeah, but contract I mean, on a token right, yeah, so th- these are these are financial products that exist and and essentially like you're trading around risk, right if, if you're like, look we are or like we invested in this token, it's still locked up for two years, but it did hundred x like. I'm happy getting a 50 X for sure in two years. Right. And then someone else could get, to, they, takes the risk of potentially that, that token like having or, or even worse. Um, so all of that it, stuff happens. It,
1: at the end of the day, we're almost going to turn this into a global stock market. That's like somehow going to supersede all the localized ones. Because, like, people are going to keep coming up with these derivative things, like these different ideas based off ideas based off ideas. Yeah. Because that's what people do in the financial world. They find ways to turn money into other things that they could turn into other things. And the instruments become more and more abstract instruments uh, Mm -hmm. because people find ways to, as you said, like transform risk into an an instrument or these other ways of like just taking an idea almost around money and Mm -hmm. a promise and like turning that into something. And that's kind of like just one of those forces of nature that like financial people are going to push. And you've seen like the success with DeFi and I'm like, you take DeFi versions of that. And then all of a sudden you don't have to worry about it being a government based thing anymore. And suddenly it's global. And I could see that really like over, uh, over time, maybe superseding, like maybe we do really have DAOs as part of corporate governance structure and other weird stuff at some point.
2: So the point Nico made is really interesting because it basically nullifies the effect of lockup periods for a lot of investors where you can, you can kind of, you can sell without transferring the ownership. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's, there's two kind of interesting things that can happen here. One is, um, what if, what if the, what if the buyer doesn't exist at the time where the transfer is supposed to take place? Like, you know if you're in like a 3 yeah. euro situation where the, the 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 capital that was supposed to buy your tokens at the time of of transfer uh, the, the time you agree to transfer ownership once the lockup expires they're just not around anymore it has to be like contract escrow or something yeah w- what happens there and b i'm i'm interested in i haven't really seen many of these up close um but i'm interested in the mechanics of how these contracts are written cuz I could see a world where certain uh, certain investors that are trying to play shark look at these opportunities and depending on how the contracts are written, like if there's clauses around material changes to the business, if these are like call options eventually where the contract date gets there and people are like, oh, according to our contract... This, this, and this have happened. And therefore we are no longer obligated to buy them if it's not doing well. And if it is doing well, they take their upside. So mm. I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of tricky situations. I think we're going to see in the next few years as these things play out where the buyer may not be there, or the buyer may have inserted something very, very tricky into the, the terms.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, it's like even the stuff where they take, you take staked tokens and you basically get a receipt token and then people start doing things with that receipt token. And then they generate like the stake those. And get like receipt tokens on sounds those. Like the banking and, system, Devin. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's really crazy because like we're just replicating it all over again. Yeah. Cause like I said, it's like a force of nature. People want to do this. People are gonna start doing this in games. You know, like this is this is going to be like so many people are taking inspiration from DeFi stuff into their games that like we're gonna get we see like before we couldn't really make games that were really financially driven and in, in, in terms of like touching the real world so much. Uh, You know, free-to-play kind of broke that a little bit with microtransactions and stuff. But now that we suddenly can, like, have games that can reach out, essentially, into the real world financially-wise and impact things, and, like, that stuff's going to start really bleeding into games, I think, and uh, and being part of the games. And, like, you know, we talk about, like, for example, in EVE, when we're like, oh, there was thousands of millions of dollars worth of spaceships blown up in this big, epic battle. And, like, we're going to be talking about something similar, you know, 10 years from now, but it actually really is essentially that money and not just, you know, like a figment of our imagination that it's worth that much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. If, if you guys want, let me know. I can, I can pitch my vision for finance in 20 years, which I call the Ooh. DeFi matrix. I didn't come up, up with it myself hundred uh, percent, but um, yeah. Um, given like where, where this technology is heading, what it looks like in 20 years, you can talk about that if, if you're interested. Good. All right. Um, I, I guess our, our last topic: Blanco's block party launches on the Epic Game Store. Is there what, what's what's the big deal here? This was announced a while ago,
2: right? Yeah, yeah, we we actually talked about this a little bit a little while ago when it was announced that this was going to happen. I think you know this is a, a pretty quick topic. It's basically Blanco's will now be live on the Epic Game Store, and initially it was a big deal because. Historically, distribution has been so fragmented of Web3 games. This is one of the first examples of a Web3 game, Web3 Native game sitting alongside a ton of other traditional content. And I think it'll help with the discoverability of web three games. It'll be interesting to see how they how they onboard this in critical mask to those players that might just stumble across it in the Epic Game Store. Um, but I th- I think it is a sign of like almost a a little bit of like a maturation of the the web three gaming ecosystem that there are now titles sitting alongside a ton of really, really, really compelling and, and respected traditional titles.
1: Yeah, unless I miss something. This is the first actual release of a crypto game on the Epic Store. And I feel like it's a mm-hmm. shots fired moment against Steam, against Valve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not, not too directly, right? Like, it's not like a, you know, Gabe's going to be fuming over somewhere over his uh, third lunch or whatever. But it's, it's definitely a situation where Epic is still kind of like moving into the territory where they're offering something different and where they're actually doing showing that like they're a bit more open to different things that they're, you know. And I think it's a it might be a signal for a feeding frenzy for other web3 games though where they start going, "Let's all get on the Epic Store." And all of a sudden they have to fight off a bunch of like, you know, scoby I don't know what the approval process is like for getting on the Epic Store. Like I remember when Steam had the green light thing, but I'm not sure how it works for for Epic. And so maybe it's not a big deal,
2: but I imagine a lot of games are going to look at that and go, like, I should try and get on there now. Yeah. Like, we already yeah. saw that with, with Grit from Gala. Right. I think that was the second announcement, if I remember the order correctly.
0: Um, I like, think
1: it was the first announcement, but the the, the much later to be released than okay. Blancos. That might be it. Mm.
0: Yeah. I'm mostly curious to see the users. Like, how many people actually, like, start playing this. Like, if there's a big change. Um, I guess that because that's in the end the most important thing, right? Like if you're on the I imagine Epic game store. If they
1: promote it, it will go up. Like if if if, if Epic promotes it on the store, then yeah. the numbers will go up. Like I yeah. think that's kind of a given. It just depends on if it gets promoted or not.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Good. All right. That's it. Um, thanks, Devin and, and Phil. One quick thing. We um if you're in our Discord in the discussion, the podcast discussion channel where um, I introduced or I mentioned that we're going to introduce new, two new segments. So first segment is called FogDAO Founders, where we get a number of like, early stage founders on who are building within the Web3 game space and have them share anecdotes, experiences, tips and tricks, failures, mistakes um, about doing this because there's still a lot of unknowns and I believe um, we have some amazing talents, some amazing people that have a lot to share. So that's um, segment one. And the second segment is the nerd in me coming out and wanting to learn more about on chain games specifically. And so we're going to do like an on chain games uh, highlight where every episode we are going to talk to the creator, the builder behind one of these games that live entirely on chain um, and to see what we can learn from that because, um, you know, this might be very niche, but it also has potential. Um, I still want to believe. So, you know, let's, uh, let's see where they innovate. And I think. Um, you know, there's still a lot to learn for games that don't necessarily want to be fully on chain. So, um, that's it. Cool. All right. Um, Thanks, Devin, Phil. Thanks, listener. Hope you enjoyed. Um, If you did, feel free to share this. If you're listening to this and you're not yet joined our DAO, then uh, go to thefutureofgaming.wtf and then your GMI. Absolutely going to make it. Cool. This was it. Look forward to speaking to you next week. Ciao.